Welcome to IVP's Hypergrowth Podcast. In this series, we talk with CEOs of the fastest growing companies and discuss the ins and outs of company building in the hypergrowth environment. If you like what you hear, consider following us on SoundCloud or subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Alex Lim. I'm an investor at IVP. Welcome to the Hypergrowth Podcast, a show dedicated to speaking with entrepreneurs and companies going through their rapid growth phase. Today on the podcast, I'm honored to have with me Goddard Abel, the CEO and co-founder of G2, the number one B2B technology review platform, which is disrupting how businesses discover, buy, and manage the technology they need to reach their full potential. G2 is the definition of hypergrowth. After only six years in business, G2 has almost 3 million people relying on their insights every month, over 600,000 software reviews on the platform, covering tens of thousands of products and services. Based on this momentum, G2 has raised over $100 million in venture funding, including a $55 million Series C round in October 2018, led by IVP. Goddard is a serial entrepreneur, previously building and leading Big Machines and Steelbrick, which were highly successful exits to Oracle and Salesforce, respectively. Goddard, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Nice to be here, Alex. Your entrepreneurial story is so rich and inspiring that I want to start and go back to the beginning. What was your first introduction to entrepreneurship and how did you end up founding Big Machines? Well, really, I grew up with entrepreneurship. So my father was an entrepreneur, at least a son of an entrepreneur. So my grandfather had started a pump manufacturing company in Germany right after World War II in 1947. And he was really inspirational to me. In a sense, he did it in the rubble of post-World War II Germany, really starting with nothing. And then my father had taken over the business in the 1970s, and so I kind of grew up around business and entrepreneurship, and just remember always talking to my dad about it, and I think ultimately that's what inspired me to want to build my own business. And Big Machines, uh, the idea for Big Machines actually came from your father's pump business, is that right? Indeed. Really, the idea was to bring my father's pump business online. Because later, I wound up here in the Silicon Valley, came out to business school at Stanford in the late 90s, in the midst of dot-com boom. And, uh, and I remember Jerry Yang, you know, founder of Yahoo, coming to our class, talking about the internet. And so then I was inspired. I went home for Thanksgiving in 1999 to visit my father, and he was in Pittsburgh, and uh, running his pump company. And I remember I asked him, hey, Dad, how's the internet going to affect your business? And uh, you know, to my surprise, coming from California, the Silicon Valley, he said, it's not. And then I asked him you know, more questions. Well, Dad, why do you think you know, the internet isn't going to do anything? And he explained to me, look, my pumps, they're very engineered. We configure a different pump with different couplings, motors, housings for every single customer. And I have to have my German pump engineers do that. There's no way I could sell a pump like a book on Amazon. It's a little bit like, um, I think you've likened it in the past to Dell, selling customized computers online. And that exactly, Alex, was the idea then for big machines was, you know, kind of bring that Dell model. And Dell had, they were selling millions and billions of dollars of PCs already all online with online configuration where you could choose the model of the Dell laptop, you could choose the hard drive, the disk, the memory, etc. And behind the scenes, Dell had a configuration engine that made sure all the components fit together, got your pricing in real time, you could just order it online. And that's what we set out to do with big machines for uh, manufacturers like my father's. So I think you raised a little bit of money for big machines. Uh, was that in the late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, I was still at the tail end of that dot-com bubble. And right at the beginning of 2000, after I convinced my father to, you know, that it could be a good idea, and he became my first investor. 
And, uh, but then he had a friend, David Scully, in Pittsburgh, who was the president of Heinz Ketchup, but he was the brother of John Scully, the famous former Apple CEO, somewhat infamous for firing Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. But he was investing in the internet company, so I got him to invest, and I was able to raise a bunch of money just based on hype and vision. And so that first year, we did raise over $20 million. I think the uh, environment changed a little bit uh, pretty soon after you raised that money, though. What was that like going through the technology downturn? Yeah, and that was a severe bust. And uh, probably today a lot of people don't remember it, but, you know, but by the end of 2000, really all the investors were now scared. You know, a year earlier they'd been throwing money at Internet companies, and they really all stopped investing. They were just trying to save their existing investments. Mm -hmm. And then the, the bigger problem for us, the customers also stopped buying from mm -hmm. the Internet, and these manufacturers were very conservative. Actually, 9-11 happened mm -hmm. at the end of 2001, so it was kind of a perfect storm mm -hmm. where we're trying to sell the manufacturers. They kind of thought the Internet was a fad and it was over and no one wanted to invest in the business anymore. So we went through some really hard struggles. Eventually it became a, a great exit, but what were some of the low points in that journey and what did you learn from, learn from big machines? Well, the lowest point for me was having to lay off most of our team. Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of 2000, based on having raised millions of dollars, we scaled up to 70 people. And you know, John Scully just said, hey, think about how you go public in a year. And when the environment changed, that was really the worst advice. So we had to scale it down to 20 people. We did it through three or four rounds of layoffs over two or three years. And really in 2003, we hit the bottom, yeah. and we were down to our last million dollars. My co-founder, Chris, and I we kind of looked at each other and you know, weren't sure whether to quit or keep going. Yeah. What was the turning point there? Um, and, and one, I think we did make the right move. We did shift. We decided to keep going. Yeah. And we saw our early customers. We had about a dozen early customers, manufacturers, that were having a lot of success, selling pumps online and other products just like we'd envisioned. And so we thought that, hey, if we give the market more time, eventually more manufacturers will want this technology. And so we hunkered down and went to organic growth mode. And, and then I think really the turning point came about three or four years later. We partnered with Salesforce. Mm -hmm. And Mark Benioff, to his credit, the founder CEO of Salesforce, he really popularized the cloud. And he got people to really start seeing the advantages of Internet applications. Mm -hmm. And we became their number one partner for what later we called Configure Price Quote Software. Mm -hmm. and, and Salesforce started bringing us into tons of accounts. So by 2007, we really started growing. Yeah, that's great. I think in that period as well, you've talked about um, there was a period where you learned to sell and you also pa partnered with your uh, now co-founder at G2 Crowd and also at Steelbrick, uh, Matt Gorniak. What, uh, what was the start of that relationship like, um, and how did you learn to, to sell to enterprises? And yes, meeting Matt Gorniak was crucial because, and this was in 2004, right after I'd gotten past the bottom of the business, and at that time I only had one other sales rep, and I met Matt. He was actually a young up-and-comer at a GE in their leadership program, and before that, though, he'd been involved in a startup, and he decided GE was boring, and so luckily he joined me, and I kind of promised him, hey, Matt, if you do a great job selling, someday you can be my sales leader. Yeah. And, uh, and he did do a tremendous job selling, and, uh, but I think what I really learned was really kind of going one deal at a time, and that's one thing I hadn't learned in business school. You know, when I was in business school, there was no class on sales, and we learned about strategy, finance, marketing, operations, but nothing about sales. And so we really learned together to build a playbook and you know, how we could really articulate the value best and do our demos. We had this whole sales playbook, ultimately about 100 pages, that we then used to train all our teams. And we're still refining that sales playbook now, you know, 14 years later. That's actually something I'd love to talk to you about because um, in our time at IVP, we've seen, uh, we've seen a great, lot of great sales leaders, but uh, yourself and Matt really stand out 
as uh, two of the best. Um, what is the sort of magic ingredient in the uh, sales playbook or the sales uh, engine that you've developed and used at first at Big Machines, then at Steelbrick, and now at G2? I do think it all starts with authentically listening to the customer and really understanding what they, what they need, but then to make it scalable. And now at G2, we have almost 100 salespeople. Yeah. And then what gets really hard, even Matt and I figured out how to sell and our best sales reps can sell, but how do you get 100 or later a 1,000-person sales org to all sell the same way? And so it does then come down to standardizing, so having your standard first vision call, your standard demo scripts, so they learn them by heart. And then they can listen because they know their play. They know the play they're going to run. They can listen and put it in the context of the customer. And so we're always working on more training, more teaching, more playbooks so that all our sales reps you know, become as good as our best sales rep. What do you look for when you're hiring salespeople? And we do like up-and-comers that we can teach. You know, but ideally, they've spent three or four years selling something. And frankly, sometimes it's great if they sold something door-to-door. You know, and something really hard, and then they really actually appreciate selling enterprise software, and they're not afraid, and they're not afraid of rejection, they're not afraid to pick up the phone and build a pipeline, and then we can really teach them. But we do also do aptitude testing, yeah. because, you know, we sell sophisticated enterprise solutions, mm -hmm. and so we want to make sure they're smart and they can learn. But we find if they have that, that motivation to sell, they've done the door-to-door -door selling, and they have the aptitude, then we can really teach them, they can learn our playbooks, and they can become great enterprise sellers. Maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, what happened towards the end of the Big Machines story, um, how you ended up leaving uh, Big Machines, and what happened to the business after that. Yeah, and Big Machines ultimately did start to grow really well, and we got to the point you know, by 2011 where our angel investors, including John Scully, had been in it for 11 years, and so we wanted to offer everyone liquidity. Yeah. So we decided to do a growth recapitalization of the company, yeah. and you know, we did that successfully, Vista Equity, JMI, equity, I think they invested $80 million in the company, and offered all the shareholders that wanted liquidity, liquidity. And, uh, but then, you know, it was a bit different. They bought a majority of the company, and, uh, you know, I worked for them for two quarters, and it was fine, but, but they really wanted to set the strategy more, and I really love being an entrepreneur and being very creative, so I did decide to step down, and I left after about another year. And then that's really then when I paused and reflected, and, and actually I should mention Big Machines went on about a year later, it was acquired by Oracle because yeah. the company had tremendous momentum. And so it was a great outcome financially and, uh, you know, put us in a good place. We learned a lot. And, uh, but then I also had some time off, you know, after I stepped down as CEO of Big Machines. And I did pause to reflect, hey, what do I really want to do with the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and after not being an entrepreneur for a few months, I, I started feeling depressed. Yeah. And I just realized I really missed it. And, and I really missed working with Matt and the rest of our team, so we decided to go, go build another company. And that was G2, actually, at that point. That was G2. And so this was in 2012. And at the time, Yelp was really taking over the consumer review world. And we wanted to bring that same Yelp model to our industry because what we'd seen at Big Machines was all our customers were really confused. They didn't know what technology to buy. There wasn't great peer advice out there. And we were, as consumers, buying everything on Amazon based on reviews, and we just wanted to bring that same resource to our industry. We thought it would really help business technology buyers make better decisions. You were on the board of G2 for a number of years, but then in the interim, you took a couple of uh, year hiatus and partnered with Max Rudman at Steelbrick. Can you just help us understand how you met Max, how that arrangement came to pass? Yeah, and I remember meeting Max Rudman, the founder, later CTO of Steelbrick at, uh, at Dreamforce. And actually, I'd met him there for a couple of years, but it was really in 2013. It was right after Oracle had bought Big Machines when he and I started talking. He had the smallest booth in the back of Dreamforce, 
And, uh, you know, but we both saw an opportunity because big machines being bought by Oracle, they were going to leave the Salesforce ecosystem. And we just thought there could be a need for this kind of CP2 technology. And what I really liked about what Max had built, he built it more for SMBs. His solution was much more out of the box, easier to deploy, faster CPQ. And, but where he was really struggling, Max was a great technologist, but he didn't know how to build a sales team. He didn't really know how to build a business around his technology. And that's where we decided to partner, you know, where Matt and I could come in, build a business, build a sales engine, and Max could really focus on the technology and the product. And it did end up kind of as a, a marriage made in heaven. Actually, that marriage made in heaven is a good analogy for um, actually a few situations um, in your career, um, whether it was a couple of acquisitions at Steelbrick or G2. Um, I think you've uh, really, one thing that's really admirable about you is you've sort of taken some of these younger entrepreneurs under your wing and sort of taught them how to sell and stuff. Can you just tell us about a little bit about how you did that at Steelbrick and G2? Yeah, and certainly I think uh, it was a great partnership with Max. And uh, really maybe then I had two work spouses, although Matt doesn't like that joke. <laughs> you know, Matt really running sales and revenue and Max running the technology. Yeah. And I think together we were able to, you know, within seven quarters scale up the business from less than a million revenue to you know, almost a 20 million run rate. So everything did seem to just work. But I really enjoyed that for Max. And it really turned out very successful for him. So as you know, the company was acquired by Salesforce. Yeah. And then I think he spent three very good years there. And actually, now he's just leaving to be an entrepreneur again. And what Max is really excited about now, obviously, he's got the money, he's got the experience, he's got the track record, where this time I think he can really build you know, another company of his dreams. And enabling that was exciting. But we've done that more also with, there's another entrepreneur, Manoj, yeah. who you might remember. And he had built a company called Invoiceit. Yeah. And very similar story, we wound up acquiring him at Steelbrick. Mm -hmm and you know, bringing his billing product into the fold. And he had similar challenges. He hadn't really built a scale company yet, didn't know sales, didn't know how to build a business. And you know, together, and as part of Salesforce, he really learned that. And actually, interestingly about Manoj, he also just spent his three years at Salesforce, and now he's off building another time and expense software company. And he's also in a great position now you know, with capital experience track record. And so it has been fun to also help other entrepreneurs kind of get to that level where they can now really build companies on their own. How do you think about making acquisitions within a hypergrowth business like Steelbrick was? Um, you know, what are some of the do's and don'ts for our listeners uh, when making your first acquisition? Yeah, and we did also just do another acquisition here at G2, as you know. We acquired Siftery and actually two very good founders, Vamshi and Ayan. And similar stories, two great technologists, great product, but hadn't yet built sales and scale. And that's probably the model that we do love. And number one, you know, we only really want to get involved if it's a great product, a great technology, and, and we love scaling that. And also we have to have like-minded entrepreneurs that also genuinely want help, you know, that want help bringing their product to market. And, um, and so I think when we find that and we find a good cultural fit, then we believe it can work very well. And probably what's a bit unique, we're not buying revenue, mm -hmm. you know, but we're buying is technology and a great technical team that we can take to market faster. And I think with Siftery, we're really excited. As you know, we're yeah. going to be turning that into our G2 buying solutions, mm -hmm. which will really help CFOs and CIOs. Now it's just technology we didn't have. It was a team we didn't have. And so I think now we're much stronger going forward together. One question I have about Steelbrick is when, uh, when IVP invested in the Series C round, the company was um, growing really quickly. Uh, but when you got involved, it was a distant number two player to a larger company in the space. How did you uh, think about that? Um, how did you 
uh, get comfortable that Steelbrick would eventually win this market. Yeah, and I think um, at the time the company was called Aptus. You know, they were a much bigger CPQ player in the Salesforce ecosystem. And I think the key for us was to pick a unique segment. Mm -hmm. And Aptus had gone very much after large enterprise. They're doing very custom solutions. Whereas we said, hey, let's pick a different segment. And we focused on the high growth, more tech startups here in the Valley. So at the time, I remember companies like Cloudera, they're an emerging big data software company. Yeah. And they really needed solutions, CPQ solutions, coding solutions they could deploy in two weeks. And frankly, our competitor Aptus didn't have that. And we thought, hey, there'd be a segment of thousands of companies we can serve that they can't. And ultimately, that proved to be true. And Salesforce wound up acquiring us because they saw the value in that. Because Salesforce has almost 200,000 customers. And they wanted scalable technology they could take to everyone, not just for you know, a few large enterprise customers. And so it was scary. But I do think, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you pick a unique segment, you have a differentiated product, then you can win you know, even when there's a big incumbent that's, that's way ahead of you. Tell us a little bit about how Salesforce happened, how the acquisition happened. It's a really, uh, really interesting story. Yeah, and I think, Alex, to you and I, well, at the time, was both a surprise yeah. because you and Jules and IVP had just invested in Steelbrick in our Series C, and we were, I think, together excited to go build a big public company. Yeah. And, uh, and really, the way it wound up happening is I had a meeting with Mark Benioff, and uh, you know, it was a partnership discussion. At least that's what I thought. And uh, because we, you know, it was important to us that Mark understood why we were better than Aptis, what advantages we had. We wanted to be the number one partner. So I had a chance to go meet with Mark. And, you know, he has a home office in uh, Steecliff yeah. where he holds a lot of his meetings. And it was exciting just to, to go meet the man. I've admired Mark for many years. Mm -hmm. And I, I do very vividly remember, you know, kind of having to wait for him. And, and uh, you know, he showed up a few minutes late. But he was this big conference room he built inside his house yeah. that was overlooking... Land's End, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Pacific Ocean, so just immaculate view, and you know, just sitting across from him was, uh, was kind of daunting. I'm sure he made a convincing pitch for you to join Salesforce as well. Yeah, and I think what happened, I started going down my partner pitch. I only got two slides into it, and then Mark said, hey, can you show me the demo? And uh, I was surprised because I had 10 more beautiful slides to cover. And I was like, hey, right now? He said, yes, right now. And you know, I walked him through the power of steel brick all on Salesforce, quote to cash. And frankly, I think that I made the demo a little bit too good. Yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the meeting, you know, he turned to uh, John Samorjai and said to John, hey, John, what do you think we should do? And John's like, oh, I don't know. They're a great partner. And then Mark said, oh, I think we should buy the company. Yeah. And, in um, front of you? Yeah, in front of me. Yeah. And then he did spend, and forget, my reaction was, oh, that's very flattering, you know, but we just raised all this money. We really want to build a big company. But ultimately, I think he convinced me they really wanted to be in our space. And, you know, as a close partner, ultimately said, hey, I'd rather do this with you than against you. And then we had a good ride. I mean, I did feel like I learned a lot, a lot of it vicariously from Mark Benioff. Now he's built a $15 billion company. And obviously, as an entrepreneur, it's still an unfulfilled dream of mine to build a big public company like he has. And so we did learn a lot. And, you know, hopefully now we can put all the good use with G2. Right, you're bringing a lot of that learnings into G2. Are there specific things that you, uh, you really admired uh, about Salesforce that you've introduced into G2 now that you've joined the company? I mean, there's many things I've learned from Mark Benioff and Salesforce, but I think two really stand out. One is his vehicle for alignment, which he calls a V2 mom. Yeah. And I think the other one is also the embedded philanthropy, the 111 model, which we're now putting to use with G2 Gives. Yeah. And, and I think on the first point, the alignment, and now at G2, we are going through a hyper-growth phase. Yeah. And actually just reading the book, Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman, mm -hmm. 
where he describes many companies that have gone through hypergrowth and many of those challenges. But I think one of the key things is keeping alignment. And with the V2 Mom, what we do is we define our vision, our values, what methods we're going to use to achieve our, our vision, as well as explicitly talking about obstacles and finally how we're going to measure it. And now that's something we define for G2 at the company level. But I also have each leader. Matt does it for sales. Tim does it for product. And so we all make sure we're very well aligned and we stay aligned. Yeah. And it's especially important as you're going through growth. What excited you about G2 to come back to the company? What are some of the things that you think are really exciting about the opportunity in front of G2 um, uh, and the sort of future that they that has, has in front of them? Yeah, and G2, I think I'm so excited because it really is driving what many people are calling the fourth industrial revolution or digital transformation. Yeah. And I think a great quote from Mark Andreessen, software is eating the world. And it's certainly true in the business world. Everything is being automated, which is both a tremendous threat and opportunity for companies. And companies really need help to transform digitally. They have to pick the right technologies. And there have been some interesting studies lately by Netscope. The average business is now running 1,250 different applications. Yeah. And so it's also daunting as a business person. In marketing alone, there's 5,000 different MarTech applications. And if you're the CMO, which of those 5,000 marketing applications do you pick? And that's where we see G2 playing a huge role by providing unique peer advice in real time. We can give marketers much better guidance, frankly, than any of the traditional information sources. And there were analysts out there like Gartner, Forrester, they're still out there. But they use legacy publishing model. It takes them two years to update reports, to publish them, and really that just can't keep up with the pace of technology. And so we want to be that trusted source at G2 that really helps every business professional in the world make better technology decisions in real time. One thing that was um, really interesting when we started to talk with you about G2 Crowd is the way that software is purchased today has really changed. It's gone from a centralized IT buyer to the business users really purchasing and making decisions around what tools they use in their business. Um, uh, what are you doing to sort of capitalize on that trend within G2 from a sort of product roadmap perspective? Yeah, and I think Alex, you're right. I mean, it really is now the business buyer. Yeah. You know, and certainly like in sales, buying Salesforce, it's a sales team, it's sales ops and marketing, it's marketing, it's marketing ops. And, and I think that's why we really built it as a consumer purchasing model. Because yeah. yeah, a business buyer, frankly, they're not even Gartner clients, right? That was more the CIO. And I think our other bet is millennials, your generation, they buy everything online. Yeah. And so really just trying to make it just like shopping on Amazon or like doing research on Yelp. And we're just bringing that paradigm to the business world. And I think it's really starting to work. We're even seeing more and more business users now researching on mobile. Mm -hmm. And so we're just providing a very intuitive mobile interface to discover and then manage and buy the apps right on G2. So it's a, a very exciting time for us. One thing that's really unique about G2, and actually all the companies that you've been involved with, is um, culture is really strong within the company. I remember at our last board meeting, you laid out uh, our values as a company, um, which isn't actually that common. Um, how do you set, maintain, and develop culture in a company that's um, experiencing hyper-growth like G2? Yeah, and at G2, we are scaling very fast, and we are putting more emphasis than ever on our culture. And we did talk about it as a board, also how it's very core to our brand as well. And we have defined what we're calling our peak culture at G2. And peak stands for our core values of performance, and that's where everything has to start. We all have to do our job. The E is the entrepreneurial spirit, especially as we get get bigger, that we all have that innovation of entrepreneurs. We keep looking to make everything in the company better every day. Mm -hmm. And then the A is really authenticity. 
And you know, one of the, our mantras at G2 is buyer first. So we're not going to put any fake content. All the reviews are real. We make sure they're 100% trusted, they're real users. So all our content is authentic, but also how we communicate with each other. We have another mantra called discourse that we expect our team to disagree mm -hmm. and ultimately align. But authenticity is really important to us. And finally, the K is the kindness. And that's doing everything with heart. And it is challenging when you're in hyper growth and we are so committed to performance and entrepreneurship to balance that with authenticity and kindness. But we think that's really the magic of G2 is that we can do both. We can be loving and kind. And at the same time, we can perform. And that really creates the kind of company that I want to be a part of, that the team wants to be a part of, our customers, our investors. And so I think that's the magic at the core of, of G2. I've heard you describe it as an entrepreneurial family before. What does that mean to you? And we really have become a family. We talked earlier about Matt Gorniak, my head of sales. We've worked together now for 15 years. And many of our team members, Tim Handorf, my other co-founder at G2, we've worked together since 2000. He was there the first year of Big Machines. And so we do really know each other like family. And I think the difference to kind of your Thanksgiving family is it is based in performance. Mm -hmm. So everyone has to do their job because we trust and rely on each other for our careers. But once we have that trust, there's tremendous loyalty. And that does really allow, I think, people to be authentic, to be kind while they're performing. And so I think it, it all comes together. And it makes recruiting very easy. Mm -hmm. I think you probably remember at Steelbrick, we brought over 100 people from big machines. Yeah. And now at G2, we probably have already 50 entrepreneurial family members. But we also like to keep growing the family. You know, we've hired hundreds of new people and you know, young people with a lot of potential, and then they learn the culture. And ultimately, our goal is they, they become part of the family as well. Hiring is an uh, important topic for uh, founders in the Valley and outside of the Valley. Um, are there any sort of pro tips that you have for hiring great people to your company? I do think building your own entrepreneurial family, and even if you haven't been an entrepreneur, but you know, getting to know people wherever you're working and that may be at a Salesforce, at a Google, but really building trust relationship with your peers and not just professionally, but personally, that's going to give you the foundation to then build your team. Because I think going through recruiters, as you know, is, is a crapshoot. So I think being able to hire through your network by having great relationships, having a great network and a great personal reputation, I think is really probably the most important competitive advantage you can have as an entrepreneur today. So uh, going back to G2, where do you hope G2 will be in 10 years time? What's your, uh, if you had to look out that far, what's, what is your goal? Well, I want G2 to be a big, meaningful public company. And I promised you, Alex and Jules and IVP, that this time we will, will ring the bell. Some entrepreneurs recently have shied away from be, becoming public, staying private longer. Uh, why, do you, why is it a goal for you? Why do you, uh, why do you want to do that? Um, I do think ultimately, well, it's a big milestone. And, and I do think it's a great way to offer liquidity to all your employees that do the hard work, to your shareholders, and to be able to access new capital to be able to keep growing. And I've seen Salesforce and Mark Benioff do this, where now they can invest $7 billion to buy a company like MuleSoft. And I think that kind of capital is only available to you if you're a public company. I have one more question, which is um, a little bit more on a personal level. One thing I've always really admired about you is you care really deeply about your work, but you also maintain balance between your professional and personal life. Uh, any tips for doing that as a founder, which is an extremely time-consuming and demanding job? Yeah, and it did take me a few years to learn. My few year, first few years as a founder of Big Machines were filled with anxiety. Mm -hmm. But I've started working on my consciousness, and I got a conscious leadership coach. Yeah. And now at G2, we have a conscious leadership coach that works with me and the whole team. And so I think finding consciousness, presence, 
in midst of struggle and anxiety, for me, has really been the key to finding peace and joy you know, while doing tremendous work. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today, Goddard. Your story is truly remarkable and an inspiration to founders on their own entrepreneurial journey. Every time we speak, I come away feeling energized. I think our listeners will feel the same. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here with you. Thank you for listening to IVP's Hypergrowth Podcast. You can learn more about us on IVP.com or join the conversation on Twitter by tweeting at IVP.